0: Give me I want some love around here Give me give me give me No around here
1: Hello and welcome back or welcome to the Performance Rising Podcast. I'm your host Matthew Dunn and this is episode 8. I am back after a brief hiatus to welcome my son into the world. Uh, so it's been a, a few weeks of uh, little sleep. But uh, we are absolutely absolute joy to have Mr. Levi in the world. Uh, In this episode, I speak with Edward Scott, Dr. Edward Scott, who's the director of athletics at Morgan State University in Maryland. Ed and I go back a long time to uh, our early days at Binghamton University, and this conversation is pretty epic as far as I'm concerned. Ed is just a tremendous leader and a tremendous uh, thought leader in this space of culture, and I hope you really enjoy hearing him outline what he brought to Morgan State and how his years in higher education has prepared him for that role. So without further ado, here is Dr. Edward Scott. Ed Scott, hello, and thank you so much for being here.
2: Uh, Thanks for having me, Matt. It's a pleasure to join you today. Ed and I go way back,
1: uh, uh, can't believe it's been that long now, but we first <laughs> met at Binghamton University. In fact, I, I had the privilege of being on your hiring committee. And uh, yeah. I remember you told a great story that I'll i will um, I'll bring up later about how your mom addressed your want to be a professional athlete.
2: Oh man, yeah, that one's hard to forget.
1: <laughs> yep, um, so I'm looking forward to that. So Ed, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself?
2: Uh, yes, my name is, uh, I'm now Dr. Edward Scott. i um, currently the Athletic Director at Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland. And you've had quite the
1: professional journey. Uh, I mentioned earlier that we met at Binghamton University. And um, could you give us just a quick overview of that piece of your professional life, where you started and, and how did you get to Morgan State?
2: Yeah, um, I always tell folks, because I think it's important that I was a former student athlete, and that's really what got me into working in athletic administration. Dr. Lee McElroy uh, was my athletic director at the University at Albany, where I played baseball. Um, I had the opportunity to play some independent professional baseball when my collegiate career was done, which was great, but it also showed me how difficult uh, that road was going to be. Uh, So then I was offered an opportunity to go back to the University at Albany uh, work in academic support and student services um, at about 23 years old. So it was a really unique opportunity because I was advising and counseling uh, some of my teammates. And so it it made me uh, set some lines professionally pretty quick. Um, I was blessed enough to stay at Albany for two and a half years um, while I was working on my master's degree in education, administration and policy. And then I was offered a a really cool opportunity to go to the University of Louisville, uh, work with Coach Patino, uh, and handle academic support and continuing eligibility for the men's basketball program. Uh, I did that for two years. We had a lot of success both on the court and in the classroom. Um, And unbeknownst to me, uh, folks were paying attention to what I was doing. There's a gentleman still to this day at the University of Louisville, a senior associate for compliance. Uh, John Carnes, who came into my office one day and asked if he could shut the door, and it uh, scared me because compliance came (laughs) in and shut the door. Um, You know, and and you're dealing with high stakes at at that level. And he said to me, there's a job at at, uh, Binghamton University back in New York that I think you'd be a great fit for. And at the time, I was 28 years old. And uh, he told me it was an associate AD position overseeing uh, academics and student services at Binghamton. And I, my first response to him was, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. And his, his response back to me was, yes, you are. Uh, and I've already given them your name. Uh, the gentleman, Jim Norris, is expecting your phone call. Wow. So um, so it, it, was, it was really cool the way it worked out. John is from Binghamton, had worked with Jim before. Um, so it, everything at Binghamton materialized really, really quickly. Uh, I went up for an interview. The next week I was offered the job. So within two weeks from talking to John Carnes, I had went up, interviewed, been offered a job, accepted, and was planning to move to Binghamton. Uh, Met my wife at at Louisville. Um, She ended up coming to Binghamton with me. We spent seven good years at Binghamton. I would attribute a lot, if not most, of my professional growth to the time that I spent at Binghamton Mm -hmm. University. Um, Was able to move up. Uh, Did well there as far as our academic support and what we built. Um, but also as a sport administrator, and then my duties morphed into a lot of different opportunities across campus um, um, at Binghamton. Left Binghamton to go to George Washington uh, to take over men's basketball, and as a sport administrator, where I was a senior associate AD, oversaw compliance, academics, judicial affairs, legal matters, Um, had a a really fun time in Washington, D.C., because we had the most successful year arguably in uh, men's basketball history uh, for a story program at GW where we ended up winning the NIT championship and setting the single season record for wins uh, in a given year. Um, I happen to be teaching. Most people don't know this about me. I have an adjunct faculty appointment at the university of Washington in Seattle. And I was teaching uh, in Seattle when I got a call from a number in Baltimore, Maryland. And I was thinking to myself, I don't really know anybody in Baltimore. So I let it go to voicemail. And it was the vice president for student affairs, Dr. Kevin Banks, uh, who was calling to tell me that there was an AD job open at Morgan State and that they had received my name from a very trusted source and they wanted to talk with me about the position. Um, Frankly, I didn't know much about Morgan. I had never been to Morgan. I didn't know much about Baltimore. Um, So I told them, no, thank you the first time. Uh, later that summer, I had taken the GW men's basketball team to Japan. We had one of the best players to ever come out of Japan on our team, a young man named Yuta Watanabe, one of the nicest young men I've ever been around. And, uh, so we took a foreign tour over there and played against their national team in four different cities. And while I was in Japan, Dr. Banks called again. And, um, you know, this time he's a little more forceful. And so I told them I would I would get in touch with them when I got back home. When I got back home, they just wanted me to come up to Morgan and listen. Uh, and I did. And when I came up to campus to listen, it's probably one of the best decisions I've ever made. Because not only am I the AD here now, it showed me what Morgan was really about and how it was this little oasis in the middle of Baltimore. Yeah. Um, and so uh, long story short, fast forward, I have been in the chair as an AD at Morgan for uh, almost three years. November seventh will be my third year, uh, and in that time, I have earned my Ph.D. and I uh, have had my first child. So it's been a uh, been an exciting journey, and as you said, it definitely has not been a straight line to get to where I'm at today.
1: Yeah, and and we're gonna jump right into culture. And uh, as as listeners can hear from that uh, recap of your career, you've you've experienced this idea on so many different levels. Um, so I want to take it all the way back and start first with what did your parents teach you about culture
2: you know it's that's an interesting question i don't think that my mom god bless her she is um you know outside of my wife and my daughter the most important person in the world to me we didn't really talk about culture uh in the sense that we do today or like a topic that you and i would be talking about as far as culture but what i will say is what she taught me was discipline. Mm -hmm. Um, She taught me habits. She taught me work ethic. So all the things that actually are culture, um, and in fairness to my mom, she had me, she was just starting community college and was forced to drop out. So um, I think for her, she was teaching me culture in her own way, Mm -hmm. but we never really qualified it as culture. But all of my work ethic, my habits, my discipline... Most importantly, my values, Um, you know, academics first, um, transparency, those kind of things. They are a direct result of the parenting style of my mother.
1: And and if you could, what was that parenting style like?
2: It was (laughs) sometimes it was tough. Other times it was uh, compassionate. Um, But I would say it was always what I needed when I needed it we didn't have a lot you know we grew up in a low socioeconomic status household my mother was a single parent um so it was more about love than uh and more about needs than wants and and you know all the frills if you will it was hey look this is why we have to do what we have to do but i'm trying to shape you for what your future will look like and and education um was a big part of my mom's parenting style. For example, uh, I could not leave the house until I got my homework done. Um okay. so my friends are out playing, running around, doing these things, and I'm sitting at a kitchen table and my mom's like, hey man, you gotta get this done. So it, it was the parenting style was more about I'm grooming you for something that you don't know you're being groomed for. And ironically, my mom and I, we have a lot of conversations today. We talk every Sunday um and we have a lot of conversations today about how she was grooming me and neither one of us knew that she was grooming me for everything I'm doing today
1: are you able or is she able to articulate where she got the idea of this intentional parenting what i would call intentional parenting so you know i'm fascinated by intentional cultures people that say this is the culture i want and these are the steps i'm going to take to get it and what i'm hearing from you is your mom had a very clear understanding of this is where I'm going to take my son, or these are the values I'm going to surround my son in. Where did she get that idea, or was it just survival, as you said?
2: Um, I think it was. I think it was mostly survival, but it was also, it was survival in this sense. Let me characterize it for you. It was a 20 a year old white woman raising a mixed race, half black, half white child, a boy on her own, uh, about an hour, hour and a half north of New York City, um, you know, having issues with her own family because of my race, um, you know, and and stuff. So for her, yeah, it was about survival, but it was also about like, okay, I'm going to make sure this young man is equipped the most that he can be and the most that I can give him as a woman. And my mom was really strategic in her use of resources. And I don't know if this is calculated, but after this podcast, I may call her and find <laughs> out. She um she she used sports as a way to infuse strong male role models in my life. Um, because not knowing my father, who has since passed, and I only met him a couple of times, my coaches, she leaned on them heavily. I remember my mom, and you don't know this story, but there was a time where I got fees on my report card and I was a 10-year-old on the 11- and 12-year-old Little League All-Star team that was, had just won district and was traveling the state. My mom found out. She walked out on the field and pulled me off the field.
0: Wow. Um,
2: and because she had those conversations with my coaches about he can't just be an athlete because I can't afford to raise him that way, mm-hmm. right? He's not going to be able to just get by. So the part that I think was very intentional, to answer your question more directly, was the use of male role models and figures in my life and the use of sports to instill discipline and work ethic. I, I definitely think that was one thing that she tried to do, um, and quite frankly, I, most people would argue it was very successful given what I do today
1: oh i would argue very successful and i think this is a great time to bring back the story i remember and, and definitely you know i'll kind of set the tone and you can fill in the blanks but essentially you know at a young age you had articulated the fact that hey you know i want to be either a high level baseball player or a pro baseball player and um it was about food do you remember the story i'm talking about i remember clearly please if you wouldn't mind uh telling us a story
2: yeah, so when I was younger, you know, like most most young athletes, I my mom would talk about academics and education and the importance of it, and I'd be like, it doesn't matter, I'm going pro, or, you know, I'm, I was lucky enough to be one of the better baseball players in my city in the state of New York uh, growing up, and so she said, all right, I'll make you a deal. I want you to understand how hard it is to feed your family as a professional athlete, and so um, she said, you know, based on the way you play, how successful you are is how well your family will eat. And uh, I couldn't cook at the time. This started probably, and this is going to sound so cruel when I say this to the general public, but it probably started about nine or ten years old, and it carried on all the way through, um, through high school. And luckily in the college, I was able to take care of myself a little better. But the story goes like this. She said, how many at-bats do you get in an average baseball game? And I said, I get on average about four at-bats. She said, okay. Uh, My mom worked at that time when I was young, about nine or 10. She worked in the deli. And she would always bring me a a brown bag after the game, right, on the way home so I would have something to eat. Mm -hmm. And she said, I'll make you this deal. You get four at-bats in a game. So every game I will bring you after the game, I will bring you a a turkey sub, I will bring you a bag of chips, I will bring you a drink, and I will bring you a, a dessert Most likely it was a cookie, because I I love cookies. And uh, she said, so those will will equal to your four at-bats. She said, depending on how you play that day is what you get to eat as that bat. And me being a knucklehead and and, uh, conceited at that time, (laughs) not nearly as humble as I am today, I'll take that bet. Well, little did I know that bet was going to run for my entire Babe Ruth all the way through high school. So there were some days where I would go 0 oh, for four, and she'd be like, "I'm gonna give this sandwich to your friend Chexfield, uh, who went to college with me, or I'm gonna give this cookie to you know your first baseman." So there were some nights, man, where I went 0 for four and I came home hungry, and yeah. she and I know it it hurt her, but she knew that it was a way to get me to understand the severity of what I was trying to get into. Um, and she knew also, as I got a little bit older, I could boil pasta (laughs) and I could cook a hot dog. So she knew I wasn't going to not eat, but she held strong on that for, for that period of time. And it really shaped me, you know, to the person I am today, because I now know that my daughter is going to eat based on how I perform,
0: um, Mm -hmm. you know, and,
2: and so, Uh, I I, luckily I'm in a position financially and and educationally where I won't have to do the same to my daughter, Um, (laughs) but I will, I will find something similar and I will figure out a way to use it.
1: So that's something that stayed with you. I mean, this, this is a value that I hear that you want to take forward with your own child. Is that correct?
2: Oh, absolutely. I Hmm. mean, there, there's no doubt about it. You, you know, my mom always used to tell me if you work hard and do the right things, things will work out in your favor. And I would get frustrated when they didn't. Right, if I didn't have a good game or uh what whatever it would be, if if I wasn't starting right away in college, I came in as a pitcher and I wanted to hit and I was really frustrated that, that I couldn't they wouldn't let me hit right away. And so what she said to me was keep working. Just keep working and slow down. And she has this thing still to this day, Matt. She says it to me. She goes, Slow down. And she knows that I want instant gratification, much yeah. like many of our student athletes today. But she's smart enough to know that if I slow down, I'll come up with a plan and the one thing that she's instilled in me is that work ethic where I'm not gonna be out work. So if I put the right plan of action in place and I match that with the work ethic, usually things work out in, in the way that I would like them to.
1: You know, if I peel this back a little bit and take it into psychology, what I hear is that she was really driving at a growth mindset that it was not about results per se it was about effort um not to say that results weren't valued but but she was driving home the fact of you got to keep working and i'm going to praise your effort over and above you know the fleetingness of of a success do you agree
0: with that
2: i i couldn't agree more and, and we'll touch on something i'll make a note here when we get into something later about the growth mindset and how i've used that in the culture of the departments that i've worked yeah. um and uh and, um, you know, what it's done for us. But yes, I think I think you're 100% right. And, and even today, I talk about the process, sort of like Nick Saban, yeah. um, less about the results, because in everything you do, there's a process and the moment that that she, what I think she was trying to instill in me is the moment that you get carried away in your own results is the moment that you stop working that process and you stop growing. And yeah. so to that end, you know, this is something I did and and she laughed at me about this. Um, I never put a trophy anywhere in my house growing up. Mm-hmm. Still to this day, I have one trophy um, in my entire house. And I have a much bigger house now than I did when I was growing up with my mom, because I felt like I would look at those trophies and become complacent or content. And so I don't, it it was something that not only did she instill it in me, it drives me every single day. I have to be better today than I was yesterday, and I must be better tomorrow than I am today. Otherwise, I'm not moving forward. And in this business that we work in, um, and what I'm trying to do with my own career and family. Uh, if I stay stagnant, I'm going to get passed by. So you you couldn't you could not be more a- accurate in your characterization of what she was trying to instill in me.
1: Yeah. And I'll add an- another layer here, which is, uh, you know, this this idea of grit. And, and you talked about it with with <laughs> it's out there. But but it's I mean, you mentioned instant gratification and the slow down. And, and again, she's really drilling home this idea that you got to you're in it for the long haul. You know, this isn't about what you get today. It's about what you get a week from now. Um, and and I guess we'll make a quick parallel and say, do you see that as lacking in, in today's student athletes?
2: There's no doubt about it. Right. So grit. I don't know if you've been looking on our website or, or yep. if that's just something you, you put together, but I was struggling to find out, um, you know, at some point in my career, I was at a crossroads where I I was uncomfortable with my own success. I guess that's as transparent as I've ever been publicly about this. Yeah, I was uncomfortable in my own success and not understanding why I was able to achieve what I was able to achieve coming from where I come from. You know, most of my friends are still in the same neighborhood and I haven't been home in, in a really long time and I need to get home. But the point I'm making is I Before I interviewed at Morgan, I came across Dr. Angela Duckworth's book, Grit. And when I read that, it spoke to me like nothing in my life has ever spoken to me. I was able to figure out why I had been successful and others hadn't. And it goes back to everything you said about my mom, is that she was instilling grit in me at a very young age and grit for, for the, you know, the listeners in its simple definition is the passion and perseverance for a very long-term goal. And Dr. Duckworth, what she did was she studied it, and she was able to find out that whether she was looking at cadets at West Point, uh, elementary school children, you name the industry or the population, she was able to pretty much predict who would be successful. And it had less to do about their network, their socioeconomic status, their education. It had more to do with their grit how willing they were to put in the work and struggle through whatever came at them to reach a long-term goal. And that is something that I, you know, I have to give my mom all the credit uh, for, because if it wasn't for that, there's no way that, that I would be where I'm at today. So grit to me is extremely important. Um, And and it's something that I I honestly live by so much so that it's how we define the culture here at in morgan state in the athletic department
1: yeah yeah so your mom's a genius psychologist by the way
2: (laughs) she she missed the
1: boat on her career but this is this is amazing
2: stuff well god bless her man you know because again if if i don't know how she came up with this Mm -hmm. and to be honest i think if if she was on this uh podcast with us one she'd probably cry because she's proud but two she, she would um she would tell you that it wasn't as intentional as we think looking back on it. Yeah. But it, but it was, right? Because they didn't, they didn't call it grit. They didn't do those kind of things back then. Um, you know, kind of like when I'm raising my daughter now, she's telling me some things and I'm like, mom, best practices aren't that anymore. So, <laughs> right. so uh, she might have got in trouble for that whole uh, four at-bats per game. You're not going to eat tonight thing, too. So I'm lucky that I grew up when I did. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, I hear on that. Um, so let's go with sports. What was sports, and particularly baseball, what was it for you as a young
2: child? It For me, it was everything. It was, um, you know, I often dreamed about getting out of Kingston, New York, and I didn't know how I was going to do it. But I knew that if I was good at baseball, baseball was going to be the vehicle that would change my life, right? And mm-hmm. so I wouldn't have gotten a college education if I couldn't hit a baseball really well and run like a bat out of you-know-what. So, you know, baseball for me was a vehicle. And and it still is to this day, right? Just what I try to teach our student-athletes is that your sport is just a vehicle to provide you the means to do whatever else you want to do in life, whether you go pro or not. And so that's really always how I looked at baseball. And for me, I was lucky enough as an athlete that I could have probably played Division One basketball at a low level, definitely Division One football. But the thing I liked about baseball, and it probably has to do with the grit factor, is that we played more games than anyone else. Mm-hmm. And I struggled um, not being successful. It was It was a struggle for me as an athlete to have to wait six more days to play a football game again if I didn't play well. Baseball afforded me the opportunity to get right back out there. Uh, and the other thing that baseball did, and, and I, I attribute this to baseball, and I owe so much to the game of baseball, it taught me two things that have been invaluable in my life and in my career, patience and failure. <laughs> yeah. I hit, I don't know, 338, 339 in college, had an outstanding college career, uh, uh, academic All-American in Division One. And I failed, you know, almost seven times out of 10. Um, So that those lessons that I was able to discern from baseball have shaped the way that I do what I do today. So I
1: want to, I'm going to ask a very ignorant question here about baseball. So everyone who's heard the podcast knows I come from a soccer background, which is a much different team makeup. And I I haven't, I played maybe a, a season of Little League when I was younger. So I haven't been on a lot of baseball teams. How does a culture manifest itself in a baseball team? Because to me, it seems a, a kind of a hybrid between an individual sport and a team sport. How does this idea of culture manifest on a baseball team?
2: I think you hit it right on the head. So what I would tell folks is that baseball is the most individualized team sport there is, right? Because when, you, when I got up into the batter's box, it was mano a mano, man against man, me against mm-hmm. the pitcher, right? But the moment that ball gets put into play, you activate the rest of your team, right? And so I, I think that folks don't often see baseball that way. And the way that I think culture forms in baseball is that there's this, it's like culture anywhere else. You have to do your individual job in order for the team, right, the larger culture to be able to be successful. But while doing your individual job, you can't lose sight of the greater good. And so I think that in a lot of ways, it's it's, the culture is formed in baseball the same way it is in any other organization. Meaning as the athletic director, I have to do my job. Mm -hmm. If I'm not presenting my athletic department in the right light or getting us involved with the right organizations as partners or what have you, it becomes difficult for the others around me to be successful, but I'll flip it. If I go all the way down to our tutor right if we have a tutor who could be one of the lowest level entry employees that we would have in an athletic department if that tutor is breaking rules or not doing what's right it will affect the entire culture of the organization
0: yeah. right
2: so it could yeah. be any individual from the ad who is arguably the most powerful along with your your high profile coaches all the way down to the lowest level employee we all have to do our jobs but we have to do our job with the the vision of the collective at at heart because the moment that we stray away from that we stray away from what the actual culture is and so so i think that's really how it's formed in baseball as well
1: so because we're talking about it so much let's let's get this up front what is your definition of culture
2: my definition i try to keep simple definitions man my definition of leadership is the ability to get a group of people to to achieve a common goal And my definition of culture is really the habits, beliefs, customs um, that uh, govern any organization. That's literally what it is to me. I try not to overcomplicate it in a world where things can be way too complicated.
1: So so thank you for that. Pushing into baseball Mm -hmm. a little bit more. Again, I'm going to make a parallel here, which is in the soccer paradigm, I, I follow international teams that use culture as a competitive advantage. Because the individual nature of baseball, and as you said, once the ball gets played on the field, it's a team sport, is culture harnessed the same way? Can culture be a competitive advantage of a baseball team? Or because it's individualized, is it, you know, the individual player has the mental, physical, emotional makeup to make an impact? How does the cultural advantage uh, manifest itself in baseball? Or if if it manifests itself?
2: Oh, I think you touched on it already, and and I don't think it's any different, again, than any other organization, right? So if you empower individuals, it's a a form of your culture, right? So my leadership Mm -hmm. style is more about empowerment and delegation. Mm -hmm. Instead of telling people what to do, what I try to do is give them the tools and the resources Mm -hmm. and guide them and coach them to be successful. It's the same thing in baseball. If I'm going up, it's hard enough to hit a 90-mile-an-hour fastball, right, even if you're really good. But if I'm going up there knowing that my team doesn't believe in me, mm-hmm. that I can't get the job done, right? that Again, that belief piece, right? The customs right. of how we prepare. If I know I put in the work, right? So if my habits are good, if, if I believe I can be successful and I know the other 25, 28 guys in the dugout behind me believe the same thing, that empowers me as an individual to do my job better, which in turn makes the culture better. It's where I've seen it in baseball to, to answer a question more directly, I would flip it and go in the other direction where I've seen it in baseball is where the culture is too individualistic,
0: mm-hmm. meaning
2: it's all about me. I'm the show right. as opposed to I'm only part of the show. Right. And there's nine other or eight other guys out here that are, that are just as important to the show as I am. I think that's where baseball different than other sports uh, because of the individualistic mm-hmm. approach to it can be a little more dangerous and erode a culture.
1: And what's the role of the coach then uh, in shaping that? Uh, you mentioned feeling like the team's behind you. And so for me, again, taking it into the psychology, that's psychological safety, which is this big term. Um, Amy Edmondson out of Harvard is is the big guru on this, but how mm-hmm. does how does a baseball coach make people feel safe?
2: I think that it's like, again, if you know, and you're going to hear these parallels from me, it's not a cop-out. It's like any good CEO, right? So when you coach, your job is to put people in positions to be successful.
0: Yeah. And
2: I think the way that a coach can do that is both physical and mental in the game of baseball or any other sport, right? Sure. Knowing that you're you're believed in, knowing that the coach has done everything in practice to prepare you to be successful, but then also, right, if, if a coach put me as a first baseman, I'd probably be thinking that that coach doesn't know what they're doing. When we got guys on the team that are a little bit bigger, can probably hit the ball a little bit further, and might not have the same defensive abilities that I do. So that's the physical part of it, right? And And there were times where, to give you a really specific example, where in my senior year, I had to hit in the three-hole, which is usually for the best hitter and for a guy who's got probably a little more power than I displayed in college. Um, And, and, you know, what the coach said to me was that you can do whatever I need you to do. And so there may be a time where I call on you to bunt in the three hole and nobody's going to expect it. And so what he did was again, he empowered me to say, okay, I may not be a traditional three hole hitter, but I have all the skills and abilities that I need to be a really good three hole hitter. And I remember it at the end, toward the end of the year, he came to me and he said, you did pretty damn good hitting in that three-hole, kid. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it, and I was like, he knew something about me and about the culture that he was trying to form and the vision what he had for our organization, i.e. the baseball team, that I didn't understand at that time. Because, again, his job as the coach slash CEO is to, I give this analogy to our people, I was looking at one slice of the pie, my slice of the pie, right, if there's eight slices. He was looking at all eight to see how that those slices fit together to make the best pizza pie that they could make. Right. And so I think that's what really good coaches do, whether it's in baseball or any other sport that I've ever been associated with.
1: Ed, you're, uh, you're laying out some gems here. And I'm going to ask a little bit of forgiveness because there's so much about Morgan state that I want to know. I'm going to have to, I want to respect your time, but I'm going to have to fast forward a little bit with your permission. And that's to say, um, because I would love to hear about all the other experiences, but, you know, in the sake of time, I would like to go to Morgan State. And, and that is to say, Morgan State, you are hired, you go onto campus for the first day, door closes, you're in your desk. What are you feeling?
2: My first thought was, oh, Lord, what did I get myself into? hmm Um, And I'll tell you why. It it was less about Morgan State, right, and the issues I inherited, because in fairness to Dr. Wilson, our president, uh, probably the most uh, dynamic leader I've ever been around, as far as from a comprehensive standpoint, I I knew what I was walking into. I I, I like to use analogies because I think it helps give people a visual of how I feel when I describe something. So, for example, in this case, what I felt like was a trapeze artist for the first time when they removed the net. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I had nowhere to go, right? Yes, I could call Pat Elliott at Binghamton or Nero at GW or Lee McElroy at Albany. I can call all those people and, and, and use them as resources or guidance. But the final decision, the buck rested with me. And so at that time, we have a, a few more employees, actually a lot more employees than we did two years ago. There was about 75, 80 people looking at me every day to make decisions and based on the decisions I made, that would dictate how their family eat. Because if we're not successful, that affects their livelihood. And so I guess the gravity, and not to be a pun with the yeah. uh, trapeze analogy, right? The gravity of what I had stepped into um, for the first time had, had really hit me. Like, okay, you always wanted to be an AD. Now you have to do the job of an AD. And that's something that I I get a lot of emails now and and, uh, messages on LinkedIn about mentoring people and who want to become athletic directors because I was blessed enough to become one at, at, you know, a very young age, one of the youngest in the country. Um, I tell them, make sure you want to do the job of an AD and not that you want to be an AD because they are very, Uh, very different. One is much sexier than the other. (laughs) Right. So let's dive
1: into that. Uh, Tell me more about that. Uh, What do you how do you distinguish those two?
2: I so so for instance, right? People want to be the AD because you get to travel well and I get all the newest gear mm-hmm. from the equipment people, right? And when I walk around campus, I'm the AD, so I'm in some ways I'm the cool kid still on a college campus, right? <laughs> right? The same way your athletes are looked at. Um, you know, people just think we roll out the bats and the balls and the game just happens, right? So it, it's a it's a misnomer about what the AD job is really like, and to do the job of the AD, I deal with a lot of personnel issues, a lot of legal issues, right, things that that when you're the number two, depending on how close you are to uh, to your athletic director and president, you may not see, right, and when you're the number two, I mean, I Matt, I gave, I swear, I swear on this to the day I'm gone, I gave the best advice in the world as a number two. And mm-hmm. I still don't know why people didn't always ask on it. <laughs> i tell you right now, as the number one, as the guy sitting one chair over, <laughs> I get a lot of advice that I'm like, well, let me think about that and get back to you. You mm-hmm. know, so I just think your perspective changes and and you really have to want to put the student athlete in a position to be successful because you're making decisions from such a macro level that – you have to be intentional about getting back to the student-athlete and getting their input. And I, I don't think a lot of people, just in my own experience, I don't think a lot of people respect that when they say they want to be ADs. Yeah. Because the higher up you go, the more folks I find that say, you know what, I don't want to be an AD anymore. Right. Uh, and so I try to weed those those young people out. Uh, right away and, and let them know how serious this job actually is. It's not all, you know, TV interviews and on the sidelines. There's 90, 98% of the job is, is not that sexy.
1: And it sounds like a lot of grit is necessary.
2: Absolutely. I mean, because, you know, what I inherited at Morgan, and I'm sure we'll unpack it a little bit yep. more, if if I didn't, if, first of all, if I wasn't gritty, and if if we didn't instill a culture of grit, There's no way we're where we are today. Now, I'll be honest, I didn't think we'd be as successful as we've been in two and a half years. I thought it'd take at least three years, upwards of five, um, because changing a culture and the mindset uh, of the people around you is extremely difficult to do. Um, But I I will say that that there is nothing but grit now in our culture, and our student-athletes can articulate that to you, which I'm very, very proud about.
1: As you should be, and you're exactly right. We're going to unpack that um, much more. I want to just take a little step back because, um, if you could, explain to people what Morgan State is as a historically black university, and how that that culture now we're we're kind of the the uh, the space between small C culture and big C culture is is going to get blurred here. But what what does that feel like compared to non-HBCUs that you've worked at?
2: You know, it's it's really interesting. So all of my experience up until Morgan has been at uh, what's called TWI or PWI, traditionally white institutions or predominantly white institutions. I'll even back up a little bit further. When I was, you know, being, having been a product of a, of a predominantly white institution um, and having worked there, um, you know, all my career, I had no intention of going to a minority serving institution, right, which are MSIs, Mm -hmm. uh, a limited resource institution, LRIs, or HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. I didn't know about them. Uh, I probably had a bias toward them like a lot of other folks would just because of my ignorance, right? This is me being emotionally aware and and being fully transparent. And so when I arrived on, so let me back up. So my wife is Caucasian. Mm -hmm. And so when we got the offer, the president said something to me that was really, really unique. And I'm glad I took him up on this. He said that when they offered him the job at Morgan, uh, he wasn't sure what to do. My president is educated at Tuskegee, um, which is an HBCU. Mm -hmm. But his master's and his, uh, his I think he said two master's, if I'm not mistaken. And if he listens to this, I apologize in advance, Dr. Wilson, for not knowing all of your degrees. Um, but most of his education beyond the undergrad level has been done at Harvard, a predominantly, a very predominantly white yeah. institution. Um, and all of his professional experience being at Auburn, Rutgers, and Wisconsin, large athletic departments, predominantly white institutions. He said to me, he said, Ed, I I want you to do this because I did this and it made a difference for me. He said, I want you to dress down, wear a baseball cap, and I want you to come up and I want you to walk around campus and see what you see. And then you'll know whether or not you should take this job. Mm -hmm. So I went home to my wife. I went home to Tara and I said, look, um, you know, we got this offer from an HBCU what do you think? You know, especially with you being a Caucasian woman and I won't use the, my wife uh, in this case, rarely does she do it, but in this case she used a four letter word that I won't use. (laughs) But she said, it doesn't matter to me, babe, because I'm still going to be white anyway. Right. And it was so eye-opening to me to be like, wait a minute. Like she's looking at it as a Caucasian woman going, I don't care. And Mm -hmm. she said to me, she goes, what we need to know is can we be successful and most importantly, well, you have the opportunity to make a positive impact on the lives of the student-athletes because that's all you've ever wanted to do. And I said, damn, she knows me well.
0: Yeah.
2: And so I said, here's what we're going to do. Dr. Wilson told us we should go up to campus and dress down and walk around and see what we see. And so we did it. And when we left campus, she looked at me and said, I think we should take the job. Not only do I think you can be successful here, she goes, looking at these students, she goes, I think that they need someone like you to help them. -hmm. And that was really powerful. So, to long-winded way of getting to the answer to your question: When I got to campus, it was comfortable. It was like it's 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 not as corporate because one, I think we're smaller. Most of my experience has been at very large institutions, with Binghamton being the smallest, at almost eighteen thousand students.
0: Mm -hmm. We have
2: about eight thousand here at Morgan. Um, So, I think that had something to do with it. But the two things that it provides that I think individuals who don't know about minority serving limited resources uh or hbcus they should really know it's one of the best places i've ever in my entire life at providing access and opportunity to folks who otherwise may not get it yeah and that for me has really is has been a hallmark of my career because if it wasn't for baseball i wouldn't have had access and opportunity to go to college Mm
0: -hmm. so i think that's,
2: that's been the biggest thing i noticed
1: yeah it's fascinating um, to take it one step deeper, what is the story that Morgan State tells itself about itself?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I've never heard it phrased that way before. I like that. I may I may repurpose that and use it <laughs> myself. Thanks. Please. Um, so we say at Morgan, Harvard does some things better than us, and so does Stanford, but we do some things better than Harvard and better than Stanford. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and and to put some some you know uh, illustration behind that, if you will, we in the state of Maryland, we graduate more African American engineers than any other college in the state of Maryland, and we're in the top ten in the United States of America. Think about that. There's a That's shortage incredible. of diverse engin- of diverse engineers, right? Yeah. But we produce more than almost any other school in the country, right? And we only have eight thousand students. So when we look at what we do well we do certain things really well, and we know what that is, and we stay true to that. Our business school was started by Earl Graves. It bears Mm -hmm. his name, right? One of the best business um, men in the country at his time, and one of the best professors of business. Um, So that is a phenomenal uh, opportunity for students. We partnered with Google um and and we have an intel and and some other hbcus and we have what they call hbcu west we send students out for a year-long internship with google and intel and they take classes at stanford i mean i would have never known that one of the things that we do and we do this better than any hbcu in the country and the numbers bear it we have more fulbright scholars than any minority-serving or HBCU institution in, in the country that I'm aware of.
1: That's incredible. We have something
2: like 149. Fulbright yeah. Scholars, you know? So this is the thing athletically that we do. We did better and we're working on getting better now. And I know Tyrone Wheatley, my football coach, will be extremely proud that I'm saying this. Us in Grambling have the most NFL Hall of Famers out of any HBCUs. Most people would know this. Morgan State has more NFL Hall of Famers than the University of Maryland, College Park does, Mm -hmm. who plays in the Big Ten. So so there are some things that we do really, really well. And I think it starts with providing access and opportunity and then making sure through that access and opportunity that we're churning out some really, really productive members of society.
1: And that's, as you said, is, is so important. I mean, they've really focused, and I heard this in your philosophy many times, but it's about the student. And I think a lot of large universities maybe get lost in that. Sometimes is is it about the student or is it about a number? And it sounds hence, to me like the student is front and center.
2: Hence, you know, and, and sorry to interject, yep. but hence the reason I said corporate. Yeah. Right. Especially. It's and and I don't think that large institutions do this intentionally. I just think this is part of the way a culture forms when you have such a large dynamic organization. Is that if you're not intentional, like I said before, about staying true one to the mission and two staying in touch with the people on the ground level, it becomes more corporate. It becomes more of a cookie cutter. Yep. Where at Morgan, we're we're very, very intentional. On Fridays, I try not to schedule meetings and I walk around. I walk around the department. I go, I spend so much time in the basement and you know what's in the basement (laughs) because you've worked at a school with me. It's sports medicine, strength and conditioning, and the equipment room. Yep. And that's where the real work is being done. Yes, That's where the students are putting in most of their hours. And that's where the people who outside of the coaches have the largest impact on your student athletes are found. And so I try to be very intentional and, and try to never, never forget that um, as I've, I've been lucky enough to move up the ladder, if you will. But why is that important
1: to you? What is that connection that you make with the basement crew and the student athlete?
2: That's where my culture is formed, Matt. Now yep. we're getting to the crux of what you yep. want to get to. Mm-hmm. That's how I form the culture. Because if I rely just on my senior staff to send the message and for that to permeate all the way down to the ground level, it'll never get there the way I want it to get there. It'll get there the way they want it to get there. But as the leader, right, when I send a message, if that message is not received appropriately, it's usually my fault for making, not making sure that the person who was receiving the message got it in the way I intended it.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
2: there is no better way, in my opinion, as a student of leadership, you know, as a guy who teaches leadership courses, the best way is for the leader to be able to redistribute that message in their own words to the people on the level who are affecting most of the change. And so twice a year, we have all department meetings where everybody in the department is there, every student athlete, every coach, every support staff, and they hear directly from me. So there can be no confusion. So when my senior staff relays that message or the head coach relays that message, that message is coming from me and they've already heard it once. They've seen it. The other thing is the visual, right? There is something about FaceTime with a leader even though the leader doesn't have a lot of time to give everyone FaceTime, um, that is so important to the folks that you're leading. It is so empowering. And so I just, and I only know this from the feedback that I get from the people I lead. Thank you for stopping down today and talking to that student athlete who we told you was having a tough time mentally because of their course or whatever it may be. Um, That FaceTime just goes so far with Mm -hmm. people because it says to them that, I'm not above you, I'm one of you, and it's something that i've I've always tried to do whether I was a senior associate or associate and especially now I'm even more cognizant of it as a um, as the athletic director
1: yeah so let's let's go there you know my my personal definition of culture it changes weekly because i'm <laughs> I'm in this space so much and I think I have an idea of what it is and then I read something else and it changes but what I do know is a large part of culture is storytelling Uh, that is throughout human history. Storytelling is absolutely vital to any civilization as it holds memory. It talks about the future and it talks about the present. So Mm. focusing on storytelling, I read your bio and what I know now since you've been there, things like you've secured $900,000, from mm-hmm. the NCAA Accelerating Academic Success Program. You have improved facilities across the board. You have doubled mm-hmm. corporate sponsorships. Yeah, so, almost tripled. Tripled corporate sponsorships. So I'm, I see the story now. What was the story that the Morgan State Athletics told itself about itself when you arrived?
2: So I will answer that question in a different way. I don't know and mm-hmm. I didn't care. Okay. Um and it, it sounds kind of coarse or or you know no, not at all. a little rough but this is why I so what most folks don't know is uh, I was recommended to Morgan by an associate director of the NCAA Enforcement Staff. Morgan hired me because they were facing a major infractions case and over the course of my career I had built a specific skill set in crisis management, uh, NCAA NCA enforcement. Um, you know, those kind of things, and so, uh, when I came in, I knew that the culture I, I'm a transformational leader, right? So wherever I'm going, I'm going to a place that needs to be transformed or will be transformed, mm-hmm. because i I'm, I'm not very transactional in my approach. Um, and so when I came into Morgan, what I knew was that if I spent too much time worrying about what story they were telling themselves or what the culture was like that i was gonna struggle to move it forward so what i did and i did this intentionally and i learned this at binghamton for the first i don't know first month or so all i did was really listen you know when i got to binghamton i was younger and i tried to push my agenda too fast and i think it set the culture back a little bit Mm
0: -hmm. and not
2: in the athletic department but just internally in the academic support area because there were people who had been there for a while yeah so what i did at morgan was i listened And I started to figure out, okay, that there's a culture of tradition and history that we need to preserve, but the culture of how we do our business needs to be changed dramatically. And so, to your point, what you read on my bio, I believe in show and prove, right? So, for my first six months, I told the president, I'm not coming in with a 90-day plan. What I'm coming in with is a six-month plan, and there's only two things on my agenda. Number one, we're going to peel this NCA infractions case because it's going to be a very difficult situation if uh, 10 of our 14 teams cannot play in the postseason next year. Excuse me. And then also, uh, we had five years probation, which I wanted to reduce, and we had a $60,000 fine. And as a limited resource institution, that wasn't going to cut it. Mm -hmm. So I said, that's number one. And I said, number two, if we want to flip this culture, we have to build an academic support unit because we had 120 some violations, 127 or so violations, give or take a few, that occurred within 93 student athletes. uh, And the vast majority of them were academic in nature and certification related. Mm
0: -hmm. So
2: I knew that the only way I could flip the culture was to provide the, the resources and the guidance that the student athletes needed to not make the same mistake. So I went after the grant. For the ASP, Morgan had applied two years in a row uh, before I arrived and was denied. And so we were lucky enough when I got here uh, to, to receive that grant, 887000 I think, to be exact. And then um, we appealed the major infractions case, and I was able to get seven of the 10 teams off of the postseason ban. I still marvel at that. That's incredible. Uh, we, reduced, we reduced the probation from five years to four and we reduced the fine from 60000 to nineteen. And so if you want to talk about changing culture, that showed everybody right away that it was going to be a very different Morgan State Athletic Department than they were used to. And it started with the major infractions case. They weren't sure whether they should appeal. And so what I explained to the president, our general counsel, and to our Board of Regents is if you keep treating yourself like a limited resource institution and an HBCU, that's how the NTA is going to treat you. Mm. I don't know what that is because I don't come from that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go in like I would at a predominantly white institution and I'm going to fight like hell for Morgan because that's the institution I serve. And if we do that, I think we could be successful. Now they had the foresight to believe in me to be able to do that. But when we did it and we came back, everyone looked and said, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. So it became a lot easier to move the culture forward because I had already showed folks in six months that I was able to do two things that they were not able to do before my arrival. And so it lent a a level of credibility to the transformation that I wanted to have happen that I don't think we would be as successful as fast as we had been if I wasn't able to do those two things to try to flip uh, flip the culture right away yeah so here's here's what
1: i'm thinking i'm going to stumble through this question because it's processing right now when you're hired i understand the boat's sinking so they need you to come in plug the holes start bailing water that in and of itself is a cultural moment right we are in crisis and we need to get out of crisis i can also understand how many leaders i've experienced it can get stuck in that crisis management, how were you, you able to form a vision past that while simultaneously bailing water? So you're, you're actually bailing water and you're about to redesign the boat. And I'm, I guess and it's a very clumsy question, I know, but I'm wondering how, that, how those two things lived inside your head.
2: I, you know, it's it's not a clumsy question. I actually think it's a good question that more leaders who have gone through crisis management type situations and then continue to transform the culture should be asked. I think you can do both on parallel tracks, right? And I talk often uh, with our staff about parallel tracks, because the question you ask is really, how do you get out of one mindset into the other? Yes. And the cue to doing that is having two different mindsets at the same time. So getting out of the crisis was something we knew we had to do, but getting out of the crisis itself is not good enough because if you get out of the crisis itself and you don't move the organizations forward or put in the appropriate mechanisms to prevent the issues that happened before from happening again, you're going to end up right back in the crisis. Mm -hmm. So what we did was the first six months was about, okay, as I tell people, they said, well, you built a great foundation at Morgan. I said, no, I'm building the foundation now. What I did in the first six months is I filled in the sinkhole, right? Mm -hmm. We literally, we filled in a sinkhole to be able to build the foundation. And you talk about storytelling, and I love your definition of culture because you can see how many in one hour, how many stories I tell, right? So that's literally how we looked at it, though. We said, all right, the the crisis is the sinkhole, right? The crisis is not flat ground. Everybody can walk on flat ground. But if you're walking and all of a sudden there's a sinkhole and you don't see it, you're going to fall in it. So that was the crisis. Once we filled that in, then we started to build the pieces of the foundation to make it successful. And I had a very clear plan and we're still executing it. Right. Mm -hmm. So first was to uh, procure the money to get the resources for academic support. So now we had one counselor when I got here for 300 student athletes, you know how that's not going to work, especially when we're football, you know, it's good as anybody. So we now have four counselors and a learning specialist. Right. So now that culture is is completely different because the resources that are provided to the student athletes change. We did that through the grant. Then what we started to do was shore up compliance and rules education across campus, because I'm a firm believer that culture is built from the inside out. Yes. You can look at some organizations from the outside and be like, wow, that is a great organization. I'd love to work there. And then you get there and you're like, oh, my God, this is the worst place I've ever been in my life because the the internal culture is that poor. but it's the brand on the outside that makes it look a lot prettier than it is. And so what we, we talk about here at Morgan is, okay, what are, what does our internal organs look like? That being strength and conditioning, sports medicine, compliance, academic support, that's the lifeblood of our body. And once we're able to build that and get that right, then we can add the other things. And so, you know, just a quick example When I hired Coach Wheatley and and Coach Brodus, who we worked with at Binghamton, Mm -hmm. um, people ask them, and it's funny when I sit with them in interviews, and they're like, or at the press conference, why Morgan? And they consistently, both of them, talk about the infrastructure that we built here in athletics, you know? And they've they've both been at much larger schools with way more resources, but they understand how important the infrastructure is. And so that's allowed us to go out and attract a level of talent in coaching and in staff members that we would not have been able to attract. And in turn, by going outside and attracting that talent, right, not only African-American males, but I've hired more Caucasian individuals in our department than anyone in the history of Morgan Athletics. It's allowed our culture to change and to continue to develop because these folks are bringing things to the table with them. We're much more inclusive. We were diverse before, but now I would argue we're inclusive because we have a lot of different folks at the table with different education, experience. I'm not just talking race and gender. I'm talking about everything. And so when we put that all together, we can give our student athletes a better experience because of that.
1: When you talk about hiring coaches, you you make me think so much about this question that I'm, I'm so fortunate to be asking you which is it's very easy to hire a coach who wins because you can see it on a paper. You know, I, I got a national championship. I got rings on my fingers. What do you look for in terms of character? How do you measure that? Something that you can't just, you know, record on a piece of paper when they're shooting free throws. What do you look for in character when you're hiring coaches?
2: You know, i That is the number one question I get, and I get it because weekly and Brotus come from different experiences, mm-hmm. but the thing about them is they're they're more common than anybody knows
0: mm-hmm. their
2: values, Matt. I hire based on values yeah i I assume anyone that I'm bringing to campus or you know the airport to interview or wherever I'm doing a clandestine interview, I assume off the bat that if they make it to the final three or five. That they have the skill set to do the job. That's not what I'm looking for because I'm not going to waste their time or my time, you know. Because when you, it's like dating, man. When you're hiring a head coach of a yeah, home yep. or high profile, exactly. excuse me, of a high profile sport. I mean, there's a lot of time and attention that goes into these things. So, like, I'll give you an example with Wheatley. The first hour, and I told him this. I said, Coach Wheatley, you know, this is Ed Scott, the AD at Morgan. He was, oh my God, it's uh, thanks for the call. You know, I'm excited to talk with you. He had no idea I was calling. Um, And I told him right up front, I said, Coach, I was hesitant to call you because I'm concerned you're an NFL guy, right? How is that going to translate to Morgan? And then, Matt, we went into this conversation that lasted two hours, our very first conversation. The first hour, we didn't even mention the word football. I mean, it was amazing, right? He told me about his kids and his family and his experience at, at Michigan coming from Inkster and you know, how he came from this small town right next to Detroit and, you know, his ability to play football is, is giving him all these opportunities for his family. And it became very clear to me that he was in a place in his life where he was looking to give back. The money was not going to be the issue for him, right? He really wanted to be a head coach and, and, you know, he had something to prove. Um, So I look first and foremost for values. I, I'm blessed that both of these guys have been married to the same woman. They have... Uh, families, you know, they just are good role models for our young men. Um, But the other thing that I look for is fit for the institution. They both have something to prove the same way I did when I became an AD. I came up through academics. I was hired at 36 years old. I think myself and Martin Jarman, uh, who's at Boston college, a friend of mine, we were the two youngest uh, African-American athletic directors in the country at the time. Um, And and so I, I wanted to prove to folks that I could do this. I came from academics. I can run it. Uh, I can take a, a program and turn it around. Coach Wheatley wanted to prove to everybody, just because I was a really good football player, one of the best all time in college, and, and a hell of an NFL player, that I can still coach football. And I think because of his size and you know and, and his, his uh, demeanor, at, at sometimes he's misread. He's a he's just a, a really good dude. And then Kevin Brodus ran into a tough situation in binghamton that frankly was not handled all that well uh, by the institution uh, i know that you know having been there and, mm-hmm. and no no disparaging marks against binghamton because i have my phd from there i love binghamton uh it's a phenomenal institution i just think they grew faster than they were ready for and yeah and, and brodus um you know was a byproduct of that and and, and so on but brodus He says it all the time. One, as a head coach, you don't often get a second chance. But as an African-American head coach, Mm -hmm. you really don't get a second chance. Um, And so he wanted to prove to everybody that what he did at Binghamton wasn't a fluke, and he did it the right way. And so I wanted – I look for people who share the same values as I do, but also share the same values as the institution. And I think Morgan has a little bit of chip on its shoulder. Like, okay, we have something to prove as an institution – And so we're going to come out and take our respect. And those guys embody that. And last but not least, the number one thing I think any AD would tell you, I would hope, is that when you hire a head coach, especially of a high-profile sport, but any sport, whether it's bowling or whatever, uh, and we have bowling, by the way, um, (laughs) that when you put your head on the pillow at night, you can sleep good knowing that those people you put in that position care about the student-athlete and they have control of their program because I'm responsible for the lives of 90 some employees and 300 student athletes on a daily basis. And that's an awesome responsibility in both senses of the word. It's very cool, but it's, it's a very big and enormous responsibility as well.
1: Thank you for that. That, that was really interesting. Um, you, you've you talked about this and now I'm going to ask you, i put you on the spot, but your hashtag is Morgan way. Yeah. So it, you know, talking about storytelling and culture, what is the Morgan way?
2: Okay, so let me back up. So grit is how we define our culture, right? Grit embodies our culture. The Morgan Way is how we do our business, how we go about living our culture. That's that's literally how these two things go together. Mm-hmm. So for you to understand the Morgan way, I gotta give you another story. It's okay. great for your culture piece. I wish <laughs> I would've known this, man. I would have been even more prepared with stories. So um when I got to Morgan and you've been around me, you know, I, I don't take no very well and I'm not yeah. a no guy. You know, when you worked with me, if you guys would ask something, I would say, let me look into that. What is your intent? Let's figure out how we can do it a different way. Right. So when I got to Morgan, uh, I kept encountering people telling me, well, Mr. Scott, cause it wasn't Dr. Scott at that time. You just don't understand. We can't do it that way. You know, you got to understand the Morgan way, the Morgan way. And I mean, I heard it so many times and it was a, it had a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. It meant that we do business a certain way and we're not going to adjust how we do business uh, regardless, because this is who we are at Morgan. So I'll never forget it. I remember I went into the president, I'm on the cabinet, right? With the VPs and the deans and I'm in the president's cabinet meeting. And I'll still, I still remember to this day when it was my turn to give an update. I said, look, we're going to create a new Morgan West. I'm going to put it on a t-shirt and we're going to create a hashtag. And half the room looked at me like, this guy is crazy. Like he does not get it. And, and one person, I won't say who even raised their hand and said, "Uh, Mr. Scott, I don't think you understand that's not going to work. And I said, I do understand that you don't believe it's going to work. I said, but I was hired to do this. And so this is what I'm going to do. So what the Morgan way means today, um, to, to the athletic department, the student athletes, so much so, Matt, we've had so much success with the Morgan Way and the grit culture. And I have to explain to you, don't let me forget to explain to you what grit means after I define the Morgan mm-hmm. Way. Um, we've had so much success that I was the guest speaker at the retreat for the faculty of the School of Computer, Mathematical, and Natural Sciences. And they wanted me to talk about cultural transformation through leadership and building a culture of grit. That's what they wanted me to do. faculty you wanted me to talk about That's that. incredible. I mean, I was, it, was, it was like the coolest thing ever. And, and the byproduct of that was not only did we have a great discussion about culture and, and what we've done in the athletic department. I created ambassadors and allies across the campus who now know more about athletics than they ever knew. And so th- it was really awesome. So to us, the Morgan Way means getting it done. It's not about making excuses. It's not about pointing blame to somebody else it's about this is what i need to do i'm going to own it and i'm going to get it done the morgan way whether it's raining outside whether it's snowing we don't have the luxury at morgan of of making mistakes or being bailed out we have to get it done because we are we are morgan we just don't have the resources that others have and so i think that the morgan way is just really taken on a life of its own and become our model of saying, we get it done. We get it done through work ethic. Um, we get it done through through being creative. But at the end of the day, there are no excuses. We're not going to point the finger or pass the buck to somebody else. We're going to own it. And we're going to get the damn thing done. And we're going to do it the Morgan way.
1: And you know the genius of this, Ed, is that you have reframed a story. And I think that's the real genius here, is that you've taken a story that was traditionally negative and you reframed it into something really powerful and one of the frameworks I use when thinking about culture is why what how Uh, so why being the values how being the mission statement I'm sorry what being the mission statement and how being the behaviors and so if I'm hearing you correctly the grit is really like the mission statement but the Morgan way is the behaviors
2: Yes, it is. Right. Because when you talk about culture, in such an abstract form, even for two highly educated guys like us. Right. We can talk about it on so many levels. Yeah. But when you're dealing with 18 to 22 year old people, um, you you got to simplify it. Right. Yep. There's so many com- competing things going on in their life in a, in a daily uh, on a daily basis, especially now with all the technology and the social media. So what we did was we said, all right. Our mission is going to be this grit, right? It, it's going to be how we do what we do, right? It's, it's like it's our customs, our beliefs, our habits, right? It's based on grit, our values. And so what we came up with for grit was this. The G stands for, and this I told you this was yep. really serendipitous, I guess. The G stands for growth, right? Literally, we say we have to be better today than we were yesterday. We have to be better tomorrow than we are today because the moment we stop growing is the moment we die as an organization right? So that's what the G stands for. The R stands for resiliency, right? And what that means is that we have to keep fighting through because most of our students come from low socioeconomic status backgrounds. uh, a, A large number, if not the majority of our students here at Morgan, especially our student athletes, our first generation college students. So they're going to encounter some difficulty and some resistance that they've never seen before, but they can't give up, right? They can't quit. Um and then the I stands for integrity. We've had some major issues, attractions issues and some other issues here at Morgan APR. Namely, we had when I got here, we had eight teams out of fourteen that were below a nine thirty. I had never seen anything like yeah. that in my career. And so the I stands for integrity. We're not gonna lie, we're not gonna cheat. um we're not gonna steal, we're not gonna cheat. We're not gonna cut corners. We are gonna do it the right way. When people aren't looking, we're committed to that because we know what our integrity is, and our integrity is something we can never hide from. And then last but not least, the team, it stands for teamwork. None of us can do it alone, right? Whether I was a baseball player, if if I, a, if I hit a triple, I still needed somebody to hit a sack fly to knock me in, right? Same way when we look at our student athletes. Quarterback can throw a great pass, but if the wide receiver drops it, we don't score a touchdown, right? So we, that's literally how we define grit. So our culture is based on grit. But grit stands for each value that makes mm-hmm. up our culture, right? Mm-hmm. So we're about growing. We're about being resilient. We do everything with integrity, and we can't do it alone. So now we have a definition of grit, right? But then within the grit itself, we have these four values that really make up what grit is for us in this particular case at Morgan. And God willing, I hope Dr. Duckworth uh, listen to this, or I catch up with her because if she's seen what I've done with her grit, I think she'd be really, really proud.
1: Um, it, it's so really and, impressive. And, um, I'm sorry to cut you off. The other thing please.
2: I'll say, no, no. The other thing I'll say real quick is we. I'm a, I'm big on visuals. You talked about storytelling, yep. so I learned something as an athletic director. When you change things, right? So if you change something, mm-hmm. or you change the way that a person looks at something, the thing they look at changes. I'll give you an example. If you look at a wall, right? Most people will say, oh, this is a wall. Well, if I put a whiteboard on the wall, it can become a teaching mechanism, right? Or if I have an architectural student, they can tell me how it's a weight bearing wall, what it does to the building. It's not just a wall, but if you look at it as just that, that's all it's ever going to be. And so what I learned is that if we take visuals and we do things differently, for example, down in our basement, right, where where all the work is Mm -hmm. really done, it was that, in, that, you remember that SUNY white that was like an off-white <laughs> yep. color that yep. was everywhere? <laughs> we called it the SUNY white at Binghamton. So it was like that, but it was dirty and it was dingy. And I was noticing my employees who worked down there, they weren't the happiest folks in the world. <laughs> the other thing I noticed is that our, um, from recruiting, our folks did not want to take student-athletes down there and show right. them away from them right? Because it was an eyesore. So we spent about 20 grand. We repainted it orange, white, and blue. It looks beautiful. We hung up all of our pen relay trophies. And then in addition to that, we put up all of our logos and the way that it, we took a disadvantage and made it an advantage in recruiting. Cause we have a really nice weight room set up with two rooms split across. So you can get a lot of student athletes in bigger than Binghamton's. I mean, we, we got a lot of good stuff going on down there. So we, when I built the academic center, we built a brand new academic center and over doubled our square footage of academic support space. I built it right next to the athletic administration offices. That visual of having that right next to the AD's office tells everyone how important academics is. Right. And then the biggest thing I learned is you got to give it to the kids in a visual form by the kids. I mean, the student athletes. And so what we did is every single year when they come back, they get a new shirt. So this year's shirt has grit for the first time on the front and each So the G has the growth in it. The R has the resiliency, so on and so forth. And then on the back, it has the Morgan way. Hmm. And these things are like a hot commodity. Like I got people across campus wanting to buy them from me. And so much. So I think the bookstore Barnes and Nobles is going to start selling them at athletic content. (laughs) So not only did we flip a culture, we gave people a way to look at something that they had always been looking at in a different aspect. And then we found a way to build it across campus and try to figure out how the rest of the campus can use it. Because we know that athletics is often at the forefront. Sport in general is often at the forefront of cultural change, whether it was race relations, gender issues, or what have you. So sorry about that long monologue, but I really wanted you and and your listeners to get a a really good feel of of what we're doing here and, and how we went about doing that.
1: No, I feel so fortunate to have heard that. Thank you. And what you touch on here, uh, you know, when you were talking about bringing this idea to the greater campus, you know, I've always said that um, religious institutions and military academies have an advantage in culture, and because mm-hmm. they have a permeated culture that everyone, when you walk in the door, it's the price of admission right? You know that this is who we are, you have an identity, yep. and you have a way of doing things. If you don't have those dynamics, then you have to create it. And it's, it's difficult. And honestly, most non-religious, non-military schools uh, don't have a, at least a codified campus-wide culture. They might have it informally, yep. and certainly might have it in athletics. But what you're, what you're really getting at here is the power of having a central identity that can be expressed in the marching band, in the choirs, in the football yeah. team, across the board—that is who we are. That's the Morgan way.
2: And you hit that right on the head. It's so, so much so that I, I think what a lot of people don't realize is what you said about having the built-in culture about military and religious institutions, organizations. Right? The rest of us, especially in a, in any school of higher education, there's competing interests. Right? Yeah. If they want students for money. Uh, they, schools want to graduate students, right. For prestige. I want student athletes cause I want to win games and, and I want to produce productive members of society. So how do you, as a leader of an organization, get everybody on the same page? And most right. people do it by putting their values on the website or their yep. strategic plan. And my issue with that is if, if you don't live it, it's not part of your culture. So you can, you can, you know, profess what your values are. You can profess what your 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 you know your strategic plan is, but I would argue that 90% of the organizations I belong to don't actually live those out. So it goes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation when you talk about my mom. When I focus and what we do here at Morgan, when we focus on the process, the end result will be what we want it to be. If we do it through growth, resiliency, integrity, teamwork, there is no other option but to live the Morgan way.
0: Right. Wow.
1: That's really powerful. And we're at, we're coming to the end. I have some quick questions. If you um, still have some time. Um, sure do. And uh, so first of all, you've been very generous and this has been an incredible conversation. I I'm curious, what do you see as the next evolution of your athletic department culture? What's the next step?
2: Uh, we need to, we need to win some more championships. And, and I don't mean that, you know, to, to be like every other athletic director. Yeah. I think now the infrastructure is so strong. We've won a couple of championships in tennis um, so folks can see that you can do it academically and athletically because men's and women's tennis also have the highest GPAs.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and then uh, the external piece. Now I'm, I'm really focused on building the external arm, right? So we have one person in our external shop who does almost everything, but I have my deputy AD, she was eating at Fleming's last night, um, you know, great steakhouse down in the Inner Harbor. She's got them locked in now. They want to be a corporate sponsor, you know. So we, we, we need to build an external unit because we need to tell our story better on the external side. And we need to procure some more resources because where we're moving as an athletic department, we're going to need those. So the, the next iteration will be really the external focus because the infrastructure is, uh, is strong and sturdy.
1: That's amazing. And um, here are some quick hits for you. So, thank you for all of that. What are you curious about?
2: Mm. I'm curious about human development. I'm always a student of of watching and and trying to figure out how people learn and grow. Um, You know, I became an athletic director for two reasons, and I'll be very brief. Number one is because I enjoy watching, I get, you know, intrinsically, I just enjoy watching people. Um, you know, actualize their goals and their abilities, whether it's, you know, as a young athletic director, there's a lot of my staff who are older than me. So it doesn't matter about age, race, or any of that. I just get off intrinsically on that. And the second thing is um, I love to compete. I think through competition, you learn so much about somebody. And so for me, I'm just, I'm very curious about human nature, how we interact and how we develop and grow.
1: What is something that you failed at?
2: Hmm. Something that I failed at. Well, making to the major leagues. I mean, that's (laughs) obvious, but, um, no, I I think I fail every day. You know, I I can tell you this morning, I wanted to get to the gym by a certain time and I wanted to uh, make sure that I had fed the baby girl and put her down and and little Tia did not want to cooperate. So I failed at being a, a dad this morning to get to the gym on time, but I don't know. I don't look at it as, I don't look, you know, and I explained this to you before. Not as much as success and failure, um, but but I think I think one of the places I would like to would like to have done better. Um, I would like to have stabilized our football program sooner than I did. Mm-hmm. I think I had done those young men a disservice. We're on before I got here. There was a lot of coach turnover, and we had two coaches, two interim coaches when I first got here. And I spent a lot of time talking to the old young men about how I could be better for them. So that's one area that I think I could have done better at.
1: What do you wish all leaders knew about culture?
2: That it's like a a living organism. It's like a baby that you have to feed, you have to clothe, you have to provide shelter for. And that the moment you turn your back on it, it can make a decision that you regret. And so you have to keep your hands on it. You have to nurture it at all costs. Um, Because culture never stops shaping and being formed. And the moment you stop doing that is the moment that it won't be the culture that you want.
1: If different, what do you wish all student athletes knew about
2: culture? That they are the ones who really really build the culture. We set the tone for the culture, but the decisions that they make, the way they view themselves, their institutions, and one another – is really what defines your culture because there's 300 of them and only 90 of us. And so at the end of the day, they're the ones who are gonna drive the culture for the good or for the bad.
1: These are three fill in the blank questions. The first step in creating an intentional culture is? Defining it. The culture we are trying to create at Morgan State is? One based on grit. We will know that we have created this culture when?
2: I don't think we'll ever know because I'm always going to keep shaping it and nurturing it. Um, But no, I think we have created the culture. And I think you know it as an athletic leader when campus looks to you to help the rest of campus form that type of culture. So it's there, but now we have to sustain it and refine it.
1: Dr. Edward Scott, thank you so much for doing this.
2: Well, soon to be Dr. Matthew Dunn. It is an absolute (laughs) pleasure. One, uh, to talk about such, I would argue, such an important topic. But on a personal note, just have a really cool conversation with a long-time friend.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Performance Rising Podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can find all the information about the podcast at performancerising.org and be sure to check out the Instagram page at performance underscore rising.